The Islamic Republic of Iran already possesses the largest ballistic missile arsenal in the Middle East. And Tehran is working hard to increase its size and quality even further, pursuing improvements in precision, range, mobility, warhead design, and survivability. That's one of the conclusions of my colleague and Iran expert, Ben Bentalibu, in a major new FTD monograph. Leveraging an impressive array of English and Persian language sources, Benham has produced one of the most comprehensive publicly available assessments to date of the Iranian ballistic missile program. Benham warns that we should expect more missile attacks and transfers from Iran in the future. What are the origin of Tehran's ballistic missile program? How has it evolved? What are its current capabilities? How does the Islamic Republic view and use its missile arsenal? And what should the U.S. and its allies and partners do about it? I discuss these questions and more with Benham, as well as Lieutenant General Retired H.R. McMaster, soldier, former White House National Security Advisor and Chairman of the Board of Advisors at FDD's Center on Military Political Power. I am Bradley Bowman, the Senior Director of CMPP, guest hosting today for Cliff May. I'm so glad you have joined us too, here on Foreign Policy. H.R. Benham, it is great to sit down with you both. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Benham, congratulations on your on your major new FTD monograph that was released this week on Iran's ballistic missile program. I'm really excited to dig into the details with you both. But before we do that, uh, General McMaster, it's 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 great to see you again, and and thank you for your friendship and mentorship through the years. And I'd love to just um, get your thoughts, kind of help us put the Islamic Republic of Iran in kind of a geostrategic framework. What is your assessment of the current threat that Americans, our partners and allies, confront from Iran? Thanks, Brad. Hey, it's great to be here at FTD and Benham. I mean, amazing monograph. Great job on it. You know, you don't really have to be smart. You just have to read what FTD puts out, <laughs> and then you can be smart, man. And and uh, and you know, I think it's really important for us to recognize the, the, the significance of the threat from the Islamic Republic of Iran. And I think when we talk about Iran, we discount really two really important fundamental aspects of the nature of that threat. And and one, the first is is the ideology of of the republic. And and uh, and and the, the revolutionary ideology, uh, its determination, really, I think, to achieve hegemonic influence across the Middle East and to, and to destroy Israel. I mean, they mean it when when they say it. Uh, and then and then the, the second part of it is the the forty plus year proxy war they've been waging against you know against their Arab neighbors, Israel, the United States, you know. Uh, the, the who they call the great Satan, the little Satan of, of the UK, right, and everything right. the Europeans do, and they've been active, you know, globally in terms of, you know, their their terrorist and proxy networks. And now the threat is that they're going to empower those networks even more with what Benham has described here, which is a a really drone missile strike complex, and and what of course you know what what he portrays in this in this monograph as a, a utility tool uh, for them to a, a advance. Uh, you know, advance their agenda in a way that is a grave threat to, to, to all of us. It's a great point. Cliff often uses the term axis to describe what he sees as kind of this growing alignment between China and Russia and the Islamic Republic of Iran and others. HR, how do you see the, um, uh, the, the changing and gr seemingly growing relationship between Iran and Russia and Iran and China? Well, you know, I, I really think it's important not to look at any one particular region myopically and to think that you know, we can focus only on the Middle East or we can leave the Middle East because we think it's a mess to be avoided so we can compete with China. Well, hey, when you leave a vacuum uh, like we did in our in our pivots away from the Middle East, uh, really under the Obama administration, continue to some extent under the Trump administration, we really opened the door for Russia to come back in, into the region in a very destructive way. 
Russia has been one of the key enablers, along with Iran, of the, the serial episodes of mass homicide in the Syrian civil war. Russia has been, as a result, able to portray itself as both arsonist and firemen in the region and to gain influence in, in Israel as well as, you know, across across the Arab states. And then China has entered into this you know, strategic relationship uh, with Iran as a key enabler of Iran in Iran's circumvention of sanctions and has provided, as Ben, I think we'll talk more about, uh, some key technological capabilities to, to the Iranians and, of course, is benefiting from buying a lot of Iranian discounted oil and helping Iran generate some of the cash it needs to continue to sustain its proxy wars uh, against us. That's a great point. It seems like, Benham, that Chinese investment in Iran will, and tell me if you disagree, will increasingly immunize Iran against Western sanctions pressure, right? Will make it even less likely the Islamic Republic of Iran will come to the negotiating table in good faith, not that they ever have, I would argue, uh, which will make increasingly likely that we may have to use military force to stop them from acquiring a nuclear weapon. Interested in your thoughts on the changing relationship between Iran and China and Iran and Russia? Well, I'm glad you're uh, pointing it out because there, this is really the trend lines for the relationships of the future. The U.S. is not going to face, as, as General McMaster just mentioned, geographically isolated and unique threats. It's going to face increasingly integrated uh, threats from a whole host of actors. And the Islamic Republic sits at the very middle of this chain. You know, above it at the near peer level or great power level or rogue state level, you have Iran, but then North Korea, China, and Russia. And below Iran at the sub-state level, you have what Iran calls the axis of resistance, a whole cabal of proxies that are created or co-opted like the Houthis in Yemen or uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon or the Assad regime in Syria or Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad in the Levant, for instance. These are groups in some ways beholden to Iran. And Iran kind of is like a, a volume button sliding up and down the scale, getting money, getting capabilities from those other greater powers producing, procuring, proliferating over time, sharing some of those capabilities down the line with those lesser tier proxies. So it plays a very integrated role in this overall larger threat to the international system, to U.S. interests, to U.S. security, as well as those of our partners. And you see it in very risk tolerant, bold, dangerous, and destabilizing ways. We failed to deal with for several decades the evolving Iranian proliferation problem in the Middle East. Well, guess what? Now there are Iranian drones in Venezuela in Ethiopia, and now being used by Putin almost one year now for his imperial war against the Ukraine. Uh, Iran-Russia and Iran-China ties are also tightening. They're doing trilateral naval exercises. They're sharing intelligence. And at the elite level, these guys fundamentally believe that America is out to get them, that the regional order is intentionally arrayed against them, and that they have to revise these regional orders. And they see their domestic longevity and survival as increasingly tied with one another. So these are Venn diagrams that are increasingly going to be coming overlapping in the next few decades and a real hallmark of the threat that we will be facing regardless of our level of intervention or isolation. You mentioned the proliferation of Iranian weapons, uh, uh, not only within the region, but outside the region. And of course, that brings up the, the preeminent example that's been featured in the news lately, you know, the Iranian provision of Shahid-136 drones to Russia that has employed them in Ukraine to kill innocent Ukrainian men, women, and children in their homes. Really underscores for me, I think, it, with, with deference to you both, that that what we've long known, but not everyone has fully realized, and that Iran is not just a Middle East problem, it's a global problem. And now we have Europeans being killed with Iranian weapons in Europe. Would, would you talk a little bit about this provision of 136s and 
I understand there's going to be construction, Iranian and Russian construction in Russia of additional 136s for additional use in Ukraine. Is that right? Absolutely. And I think, again, General McMaster mentioned something about the Syrian conflict there as well. It's not the first time that Iran's foreign and security policy, and it's not the first time that Iran's overall national security strategy, at least under the guise of the Islamic Republic, has created problems for Europe. Iran's support for the Assad regime's homicide, and if not genocide in Syria, is what really created the refugee flows that Europe has been struggling to deal with since 2012, since 2013, and really stepped up since 2015. So ultimately, the problems in the Middle East never remain quarantined in the Middle East. That really is one of the takeaways. And lest they not be checked, they'll grow and they'll grow in geographically unique ways that ties into the drone proliferation. Who knew just two years ago when the Trump administration was trying to get its European partners to extend a multilateral arms embargo on Tehran, that the fear would not be Iran importing weapons, it would be Iran exporting weapons to a conventionally superior state. And that's exactly what's happening with the Iran-Russia relationship. Indeed, Iran is stepping up the support for those lowering munitions. It's changing the warheads on those munitions. As you rightly mentioned, Brad, it's helping Russia produce them with commercially available parts at lower costs on Russian territory. So this means the authorities and the capabilities we have for interdiction diminish. It means the sanctions against Iran's defense industrial base are less effective. And the export control against Iran's procurement rings are less effective because now, literally like Russian nesting dolls, we have to change the target and leap up one to focus on these assets in Russia. And the Iranians know that, the Russians know that, and this is what has kept the Russians in the game for so long against the material support that America and the West has provided for Ukraine, as well as, of course, the sanctions which we've seen rapidly increase against Russia. Iran is underwriting Russia's war with these drones. HR, what do you think that Iran is going to demand in return from Russia? You know, hey, we're providing you these drones, which have been very useful to you, Kremlin. We may be providing these short-range ballistic missiles. It seems to me that might be creating an IOU, uh, a debt that Tehran's going to call on. What do, you, do you agree with that? And what do you think they're going to ask for in return? Well, they're already getting protection from Russia. They get protection from Russian international bodies. Russia vetoes measures against Iran on, on the Security Council. Russia does, as, as Ben already mentioned, they do, they do joint naval exercises to try to intimidate countries in the region. Russia uses its influence in, in many ways to enable Iran already. I mean, look at what they're doing in Syria as an example. Russian military capabilities enable Iran's proxy army in Syria, and they both get something out of it. Iran gets to threaten Israel and to perpetuate the cycle of sectarian violence in the region that keeps the Arab world perpetually weak. And, and Russia gets big influence in the Middle East. Again, because what they'll say to, to countries in the region, they'll put forward what I call Putin's Potemkin peace plan. How's that for alliteration? <laughs> in which Putin says, hey, you know, just help me out with keeping Assad in power. And what I promise I'll do is in a post-Civil War Syria, I'll work to diminish Iranian influence. And of course, that's a lie because Assad is actually much more reliant on the Iranians than, than, than he is uh, on, on the Russians. So what they do is they, they, they work together to advance their interests uh, in a way that has tremendous you know, political impact in terms of diminishing our influence in, in the region, but also has a huge, as Ben mentioned, a humanitarian impact, has created you know, the, the, the largest mass migration since the end of World War II in a way that in many ways destabilized Europe politically. And then that redounded to Russia's benefit again, right? Because Russia got out of that 
know, the ability to support, you know, far left and far right nativist parties to polarize European societies, pit them against each other and diminish European will such that he felt like, hey, I can reinvade, you know, Ukraine in, in, in February of last year and, and get away with it. You know, because, because, you know, Europe is weak, America's weak, and America's saying that they're going to leave the Middle East. America surrendered to the Taliban in Afghanistan. It feeds into this narrative uh, that emboldens Russia, Iran, and, and China. No, exactly. Benham, do you think a, an ask of Tehran to Moscow might be, hey, we, we gave you the Shahid 136, the 131s, we're going to give you even more? Uh, what about giving us some SU-35s? What about giving us some advanced air missile defense? Or what about, uh, hey, Putin, stop giving tacit approval to Israel to conduct strikes in Syria so we, Islamic Republic of Iran, can establish another front for attacking for the state of Israel? Do you think those are realistic concerns or, or what are your thoughts on that? I have some very unfortunate news on that front. And at, at least based on Persian language reporting, Persian language press, Iranian parliamentarians are already saying that they'll take delivery of the Su-35 by Persian New Year this year, which is uh, you know, in mid-March, just the first day of spring. Uh, if that comes to pass or it's just after that deadline, who knows? But this is something that's being widely reported in the Iranian press today. I mean, from Iran's security perspective, this may be more of a status boon than a security boon in the very short term. But in the medium to long term, given that we know Iranian pilots are reportedly already training on this with Russian assistance, and that Iran is looking to become not just an asymmetric military power and not just a conventional military power, but a better hybrid warfighter integrating elements of of both the asymmetric and conventional domains into its arsenal and using them more selectively and throwing them in a unique cocktail combination of different theaters over time, this could really spook a lot of the countries which have right now more superior air forces. My big fear is the second and third thing that you mentioned, though, which is greater coordination in Syria, potentially to erode uh, Israel's gains from what is popularly called the war between the wars. Thus far, Russia has not provided uh, you know, air defense cover for Iranian assets and Iranian proxies operating in Syria. Uh, from a military planning perspective, I'd be very worried about the Iranians getting the S-400 and integrating that with their patchwork of domestic and, and uh, foreign procured uh, SAMs. They have some SAMs that allegedly function on par. Surface air missiles. Indeed, yeah. yeah mm -hmm. Surface air missiles yeah. that function on par or better than uh, Russian ones. There's the Bavar 373, I believe, is the Iranian version of the S-300. So they have this this patchwork, which is making you know uh, suppression of enemy air defense and destruction of enemy air defense operations harder. So my fear is that if the Iranians get delivery of this and potentially work with the Russians to produce it on Iranian soil or integrate it, uh, it'll it'll create long term ripple effects down the line. Why do you think uh, Iran has not transferred the short range ballistic missiles to Russia yet? What's what's the holdup on that? This is a, a really great point because. And you mentioned uh, two words very near and dear to my heart, which are ballistic missiles. Um, you know, the Iranians, as much as they reject the international system, they love to be seen as the victims of people who purport to break the rules of said system. And as much as they despise the West, as much as they despise America and the you know international system that America created, even the UN, the rules-based order, they covet the recognition that comes with being a certain kind of power. So there are some theories that say that Iran has not proliferated this weapon because it's waiting for the October 2023 uh, missile technology control regime as well as missile prohibitions found in UN Security Council Resolution 2231, Annex B, 
to lapse. And that is what codified what people call the JCPOA, the 2015 Iran nuclear deal, that also had some of these freebies that unwound tougher multilateral and Which created all these sunsets Indeed. that they were very happy to agree to because all they had to do is bide their time while, you know. Yeah. Watch and wait. Exactly. Watch and exactly. wait. And in fact, don't watch patiently. Don't yeah. watch with your hands folded. Yeah. Watch and grow the capabilities that were unrestricted and undealt with by that you know, nuclear deal. So Iran may want to be seen as the good guy, uh, you know, saying, look, I'm following rules. I have no international prohibition against this. Uh, that is one theory. It's not the only theory. You know, sometimes the Occam's razor takes hold. Iran and Russia, as much as they uh, are cooperating, they still have some historical enmity and baggage. Uh, it's not easy to work with Khamenei's regime. It's not easy to work with Putin's regime. I think this is a Russian saying, but there is no honor among thieves. That could totally be an issue, a holdup. What are we getting in return? There's also questions of Iranian ballistic missile production rates, which are less known about and the costs are less clear for the regime than something like drones, which are cheaper. And I would just say we have to recognize they're both in a very weak situation, Russia and Iran. And I would add China into that as well. I mean, I think if we are determined and if we implement, in, in this case, some of Benham's recommendations, which I hope we get to as, as well – you know, I think we, we are in a position of relative strength. I mean, look what's happening internal to Iran now in terms of the, the dissent associated with, you know, the, the murder of an Iranian woman for not wearing her job. And it's gone obviously much wider than that, even though many of those protests have been repressed by the, by the, the regime's brutal murder of, of, uh, of protesters and imprisonment of protesters that, that, that you know, you saw in the, in the, you know, the revolution day celebrations, people yelling out of their windows, you know, down with the regime, you know, uh, slogans against the supreme leader. So I do think there's, there's a high degree of discontent internal in Iran. Iran is, Iran's conventional military is extremely weak, you know, and, and I think when they're confronted with strength, they back up because they, they recognize their weakness. And then Russia, of course, has a lot of problems now. I mean, it's unclear that they're they're going to be able to sustain their war making machine. I mean, how good are, are Russian exports if you can't get any repair parts? You know, and 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 I think that I think not only you know Iran would suffer from that, but other countries who would become over reliant on Russian weapon systems, or you know, enamored with them, maybe. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I think like India, for example, has got to really make a, a fundamental shift away from, from Russian weapon systems. And then it's, it's unclear, you know, what the effects are going to be on the Russian economy, especially as the price of oil and gas go, go down. And, and they've, they've taken some really desperate stopgap measures, uh, you know, financially, uh, economically in, in, uh, in, in Russia. And of course, China, right? I mean, China just, you know, had this, the major reversal of the, the zero COVID policy in large measure, in large measure because people were fed up yeah. with it. And China is at risk at not really meeting the rising expectations of its population with slow economic growth, a financial crisis, at least in, in the housing sector, but a huge debt crisis that it, that could reverberate across its economy. So I think what you see is you have three weak and desperate bedfellows. We mm. haven't talked about North Korea. Because, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know, Kim Jong-un's like, hey, what about me? You know, <laughs> I fired, not, I fired 90 yeah. missiles last year. You know, <laughs> why aren't you talking about me at FTD? So I think <laughs> I, th I think it's uh, important for us to recognize that whereas they tr th these, these authoritarian regimes, the theocratic dictatorship in Iran, tries to portray strength, they're actually, I think, quite weak and fragile. Now, the, the bad news is Authoritarian regimes don't need to be that strong. They just need to be stronger than the opposition. So we may have to be dealing with these with these authoritarian regimes for quite some time. But we shouldn't talk ourselves into this idea that they are inherently strong. 
hours. I, I, just from my humble foxhole, that's such an important point because, I mean, Benham, with deference to you, I mean, the essence of why they conduct their proxy terror strategy is, is really comes from weakness, right? Because they know they can't go toe-to-toe with us conventionally. So they put forward these puppets in hopes that we'll focus all our reaction on the puppet rather than the puppet master who is, is weak, as General McMaster just said. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. You know, it's Iranian cognizance of their economic situation, their political situation, their military situation, plus a little bit of ideological zeal when it comes to training guys abroad. I mean, a lot of these revolutionaries got their start abroad, training with armed groups during the Cold War, like the PLO and whatnot. But ultimately, yeah, these guys understand the tough economic position they're in. They overlearn some of the real lessons of deterrence from the 1980-1988 Iran-Iraq war. That is actually the wellspring of the regime's foreign and security policy. They created Lebanese Hezbollah while fighting a World War I-style trench warfare, chemical warfare-style battle with Ba'athist Saddam Zirak. Uh, that was the war that spurned them to resurrect the Leigh Shah's nuclear program because they realized this asymmetric patchwork of terrorists they're building need an ultimate deterrent back home to immunize the homeland so they can continue their revolutionary foreign and security policy. And they learned the the lessons of ballistic missiles the hard way, that you have to procure them, be able to produce them, and ultimately proliferate them to your partners uh, so that you can signal strength and you can do what the Iranians have talked about for so long, which is to respond in kind. Yeah, no, that's great. With that grand strategic uh, scene set so well there, let's dive into your monograph, uh, which I'm sure. really excited to talk about. Congratulations again. I know you've been working on it for a while, and uh, I really do think it's going to be a go-to source on these issues for many years to come. So r- congratulations to you. Uh, it's entitled Arsenal Assessing the Islamic Republic of Iran's Ballistic Missile Program. It's got a great forward by Vice Admiral James Searing, the former director of the Missile Defense Agency. Um, let, let's start at the, I always love to start, you know, maybe it's the old congressional staffer and me, uh, you know, talking to folks uh, in all parts of the country, busy with their lives, raising their kids, paying the mortgage. You know, we, we hear a lot about Chinese balloons. We hear about Ukraine and Russia. Why should I care as someone who's busy with raising my kids and paying the mortgage about Iran's ballistic missile program? Well, it's a, it's a really great question. And I mean, there, there, there's a couple of different answers. But ultimately, uh, if you are afraid of the Islamic Republic's foreign insecurity policy, if you have concerns about how the regime has been able to uh, immunize itself. Uh, If you have concerns about the destabilization that the regime has uh, basically turned into everyday life across the heartland of the Middle East, and if you have concerns about the regime reaching potentially out of the Middle East, potentially towards Europe and then ultimately towards America, you should be concerned about the one tool that gives the regime this status and security boon, and that is ballistic missiles. This is ultimately the way for the regime to conventionally punish its adversaries in the region. This is the way it flexes. This is the way it threatens U.S. bases, U.S. diplomats, allied personnel in the region, as well as our partners in the region. I mean, they literally write death to Israel on these slogan on these missiles and then they actually test fire them they actually parade these missiles and and fire them against mock-ups uh, of things that you could basically say are, are anti-semitic and, and genocidal against our troops and our partners in and, the region which indeed, is a key takeaway from your report and I indeed mean, they have yeah, they, they've yeah. fired over 140 I think traumatic brain injuries uh, in the January 2020 strike and actually just last September for the first time ever in history Iranian ballistic missiles, particularly a close-range ballistic missile, killed a U.S. citizen in northern Iraq. My fear is that it won't be the last. H.R., how would you answer that question about why your average American should care about Iran's ballistic missile program? Well, I think you know, Iran has been extremely active against us. You know, If we go back to 1983, you have the bombing against the U.S. Embassy and the bombing against the U.S. Marine barracks. You had multiple U.S. Uh, citizens taken hostage 
murdered in custody by by, by the Iranians. Uh, it's been a sustained proxy war against us. You know, uh, Hezbollah uh, and and uh, and and you know, Iranian proxy forces went global in the 1990s. You might say in in, in Europe. I mean, they they had plotted to kill the sitting you know, Saudi ambassador to the U.S. in a in a popular restaurant in Georgetown. <laughs> you know, they've the, you saw what what happened to Salman Rushdie. You've seen uh, Iranian. Uh, the former journalists and dissidents targeted and recent arrests against an assassination cell here in in the United States. Uh, you had the Cobar Towers bombing in 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 the in the in the nineties. You know that killed uh, nineteen uh, American uh, uh, servicemen. Um, and and you know so it, I mean the list goes on. I mean I could go on and on about this, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. every time every time Iran, yeah, I mean I, I would say complicit in the in in the killing of six hundred American. Yeah. Servicemen and women in 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 Iraq uh, through their proxies uh, with with mainly with explosively formed projectiles. Uh, so the list goes on. So why should we care about it? We should care about it because now they're perfecting uh, a weapon system, a, a range of weapon systems that could attack U.S. allies and and interests and embassies and facilities in the region. But of course, you know the missiles <laughs> yeah they just have to be redesigned to fly further, right? And so. So this is this is a a capability that you do not want uh, the, the Iranian regime to have because it would threaten our interests abroad and eventually be a direct threat to our homeland as well. And just a footnote yeah, uh, on that yeah. that long laundry list that uh, General McMaster rightly pointed out about Iran-backed terrorism, Iranian proxies in the region, and the threat not just against Iranian you know citizens, dissidents, partners, U.S. citizens, U.S. officials, but ultimately. One reason the regime feels so confident doing this is that these are the weapons that it believes it can respond to any kind of kinetic response to us contesting their terrorism. So in the report, for instance, there is a a, a great uh, Iran expert in Washington. He's a colleague and friend of ours. He's at the Carnegie Endowment. His name is Karim Sajidpour. He talked about the Iranian political elite, uh, about Zarif, Iran's former foreign minister, and about Qasem Soleimani, the former Quds Force chief. And he talked about these two guys being like a sword and a shield for the regime. So consider some of Iran's ballistic missiles a shield. This is an analogy I adapted from him that immunizes the regime, that secures the homeland, secures the assets abroad, and then punishes those who threaten it. And that the sword, this low-level unconventional asymmetric terrorism stuff, is what can go below the radar, unabated, continue to poke, prod, provoke, and kill. So this sword and shield analogy, how the regime defends itself and continues its export of the revolution in its fourth decade. That's such a great formulation, at least for me, helps me understand it. Sword and shield. Sword, they use their ballistic missiles to attack us and our partners. And, and in your report, you cite in, in methodical detail all the instances where they've done that. And it's also a shield by which it creates a perceived deterrence that in, in their minds incentivizes more aggressive terrorist proxy behavior. They're not going to respond to our terrorist proxy behavior because if they do, we're going to use their missiles against them. Right. And then thirdly, I noticed in your report, you cited uh, DNI, then DNI Clapper's testimony in January of 2014. I was actually in the room at the time, staffing my boss at the time when he, when he said this, and I'll never forget it. It's, it's kind of obvious when you say it, but it's important for Americans to hear this. This is the means by which our intelligence community believes they would deliver a nuclear weapon if they ever acquire one. Right. So there, uh, there, there are three, I think, very important reasons why we Americans, our allies and partners should care about this. 
um, I, I don't want to skip over the the part of your monograph, Benham, where you talk about kind of the origin and evolution of the ballistic missile program. We we need about five hours to do that justice, but uh, Only in about five? yeah, <laughs> but you're so good at summarizing. So maybe uh, two or three minutes, if you wouldn't mind, on 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 what you think the listeners need to understand about the origin and evolution of Iran's ballistic missile program. You know, I think the supreme leader of Iran could do a better job than I could. And in 2018, his office put out a video, a short video on his website that had a a video of wreckage from the Iran-Iraq war. And Khamenei, the supreme leader's voice, is, you know, he was then president, now supreme leader. His voice was in the background talking about the, the damage caused by Saddam's scuds and that Iran literally couldn't respond. And, you know, Saddam had this capability and whatnot. And that he said, we had to put our hands together and watch as these missiles rained down, rained down on civilian and military targets. I mean, make no mistake, the Islamic Republic was no innocent actor that was totally victim to Saddam. They provoked him in the first half, and Saddam was an opportunist. We know that. But ultimately, the regime believed it needed to, quote-unquote, respond in kind. So it spurned this threat that we've seen, this, this constellation of rogue regime partnerships, Iran going to then Hafez Assad Syria for training and tells, going to North Korea later on for scuds, and going to Libya for scuds and missile crews and engineering teams to get a capability that could eventually become homegrown that would allow Iran to respond in kind. And this desire to respond in kind spurned their program, and simultaneous with other threats, that, again, were resurrected during the Iran-Iraq war, like the regime's nuclear program, like its terrorist proxies, like its maritime uh, naval escalation and threats to you know the, the free flow of oil in the Persian Gulf and Strait of Hormuz, came to form the backbone of the regime's broader threats to the global architecture. And, you know, there is a, a line I, I cite from an, a much older book, a, a book uh, by Ken Pollack in the 2000s called The Persian Puzzle. And he's talking about being a young CIA agent. And he's, a, he's assigned to the uh, Iran-Iraq uh, desk at the tail end of the Iran-Iraq war. And, you know, conventional military analyst says that when you fight a conventional war and you lose, you rebuild your conventional army. Well, he saw the regime rebuilding its army but not in a way to prepare to fight another set-piece tank battle or trench battle against Saddam or against the Saudis. He saw them getting ready to fight a much larger adversary. He saw them getting ready to fight and potentially deter America. And the regime's procurement, production, and proliferation of these systems since that time, since the tail end of the war, have made it what multiple DNIs, not just former DNI Clapper, have said the largest ballistic missile arsenal in the Middle East. It's also the most diverse. That should be something very scary. I know many of our partners in the region have fancy planes. Well, these guys have fancy missiles. And cost for cost, yes, it's not a reusable platform, but it is certainly a reliable platform. It is fast, it is hard to intercept, and it gives the regime this status and security boon, much like its nuclear program does, to continue that low-level kind of asymmetric threat that is actually what has made and sustained the Islamic Republic, the world's foremost state sponsor of terrorism for four decades. So this really is the weapon that infatuates the regime elite and really is the takes the bulk of their resources uh, in terms of their national security spending and priorities. And that's why they, they basically idolize it. It's precisely why four decades later, when they commemorate the anniversary of the revolution on February 11, they do so with ballistic missile displays. Gentlemen, Master, we were talking earlier about the, and, and Ben mentioned just a moment ago, the, the January 2020 strike on the two bases in northern Iraq where Americans were injured. And 
I, I published a, a, a week or two after that, just highlighting for American readers the fact that we did not have any ballistic missile defenses in the region at the time to do anything about that. So our, 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 our brave service members uh, standing between us and those who wanted to kill us had no choice but just to scramble for cover. Um, and, and for me, highlighting the fact that we have nowhere near the air and missile defense capabilities that we need to protect those who are protecting us. Um, the, uh, you know, how do you see, kind of moving into the present, how do you see Iran's ballistic missile threat and, and how we're dealing with it in the Middle East? Well, we're dealing with it inadequately. And I, I think it's important you, you, to note that we do, you do need very good air, air defenses, right? Integrated air defenses against that kind of capability. But you, you have to not only be able to, to shoot down the arrows, which Ben said is very difficult to do, you have to be able to kill the archer as well. So you need your own long range precision strike capabilities. And of course, what you really want to do is deter by to, you know, communicating clear to the Iranians that they can't continue to use these capabilities without you know, without significant retaliation and an imposition of costs way beyond that which they factor in at the beginning. So I think whenever we're attacked by Iranian, Iranian proxies or cutouts, we should make clear that we know what the return address is. You know, and and I, I, I for one was disappointed after this 2020 strikes you described that we didn't do everything we could at that moment to physically dismantle. Iran's missile program. I think that would have been an appropriate uh, response, uh, and and to impede its development at least, you know, with some very significant strikes. And I think, I think that would have been appropriate even under the Artic- Article Two authorities of the president. Uh, but I think the U.S. Congress ought to think really hard about you know authorizing a military force against this kind of aggression. Hey, we know that the Iranians have never met a weapon they haven't used, right? And 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 what they've done is kind of predictable. I mentioned you know kidnappings. You know, uh, bombings of, of, of embassies, bombings of, of U.S. military facilities, missile strikes. How about mining, you know, how, the, the, the Straits of Hormuz? How about short-of-ship missiles uh, to, to sink commercial vessels? I mean, we know the range of what they do. So I think we should have in-place contingency plans that we have conversations with Congress about. And we say, hey, if, if this happens, massive cyber attacks I didn't even mention, if this happens, then here are the options we're going to bring to the president and hey, we need Congress on board with us to rapidly authorize force or sanction the president's use of force under Article Two, approve of it, uh, and then work with some allies and partners on this as well. It's astonishing to me that the EU is so slow, and others are so slow at at sanctioning Iran's you know abhorrent behavior, uh, the you know the murderous behavior across across the region, you know the the use of, of these missiles, the provision of of drones to the Russians. And and I, I think we've been just weak in our response, and Iran thinks they can get away with it. Ben said from the beginning, you know, I, I think now with the relationship with Russia and China, it gives them an out. You know, back when this weak, really bad nuclear deal was signed under the Obama administration, I think Iran was under some duress. They were under some significant economic duress. Not as much now. They're under other forms of duress. But I, but I think we have to recognize that the regime has kind of you – know, they've kind of flipped us off, you know, on, on renegotiating. We, we humiliated ourselves, I believe. By using the Russians as interlocutors to talk to the Iranians, they must be laughing at us, right? I mean, because, of course, it's the Russians who are providing them cover. So I just don't think they take us seriously at this point. And I think we ought to really you know, put uh, a big effort into planning responses that, again, impose costs on the Iranians way beyond what they factor into their decision making. That is, that is absolutely pivotal. I, I think the general hit the nail right on the head. And again, there's brilliant people who've trodden this path before me. And again, you just hit the nail right on the head. But it's not just about deterrence by denial. It's not just about making the regime risk the cost of the one projectile or the one arrow you mentioned that they fire. It's about deterrence by punishment. It's about if they fire this, they need to know that we will threaten that which they hold dear. 
this is the, ultimately the only way to change the strategic risk-taking calculus of the Islamic Republic. The general just mentioned uh, the Islamic Republic giving the middle finger or flipping the bird to the U.S. It does this routinely to the EU. You know, right now there is debates within the EU. The EU Parliament actually wants to designate the IRGC, the guardian of Iran's ballistic missile program, the agent of the domestic repression, the driver of the foreign aggression, and the hub of its terrorist apparatus as a terrorist organization. And the EU Council is too afraid to do it. And not only that, the Iranians are watching this debate in real time. Literally, you have IRGC generals calling the Europeans dwarves. He's saying, dwarves, go ask your American friends what it's like to confront the Revolutionary Guards. And in the minds of these generals, what it's like to confront the Revolutionary Guards is the U.S. non-response to Iran publicly, attributably, from its own territory, firing its most prized weapon against American bases that are unguarded with the potential for massive loss of life and the U.S. simply absorbing it. And in the, mind, and in the words, to paraphrase, of the commander of the Iranian Missile Force, Brigadier General Amir Ali Hajizadeh, who is really responsible for this drive for precision that we're now seeing in Iran's weapons. They're not just weapons of terror, they're battlefield weapons. He claims in 2009 when he got that portfolio, Khamenei gave him this charge for precision. Uh, he says that he's cognizant of American capabilities that are far outpace his capabilities as missile force commander, but he's cognizant that Iran has the will to use it and the will to use it earlier. And that has been the secret sauce binding this terrorism missile rogue regime apparatus. It's the will to use these weapons earlier at an earlier point in the conflict and make the other side's responsibility function as restraint. I mean, think back to the tanker wars, right? And and when it, when a U.S. destroyer hit a mine, uh, we sunk the entire Iranian Navy. You know, I mean, I I think something like that's in order. You know, at, the, at this stage, to be prepared to do something like that. So not only exactly. So not only do they have the the largest arsenal in the Middle East of ballistic missiles, but as you you lay out in detail in the report, Benham, uh, it, they're they're working on precision. They're make, and they're working on the range. And, and you have uh, on page forty three <laughs> for the listeners, you have a, a, a graphic there that I hope folks look at that shows that the current range of their current inventory can hit parts of Eastern Europe, including uh, much of Eastern Ukraine, Romania, Bulgaria, and Greece. And so we have Iranian Shahid-136 killing Europeans in Ukraine, and we have their current inventory that can now range uh, parts of Eastern Europe, and they're working on their space launch vehicle program. Now, folks uh, listening at home might say, what does a space launch vehicle program have to do with their ballistic missile program, and how is that relevant to Europe and maybe eventually the United States of America itself? Can you just talk through that quickly? It's an excellent question. Literally, the regime for many years now has been claiming that that range fan that we have in the report is about 2,000 kilometers. And, you know, this has led to some in the West wanting to lock in that range fan and say, okay, well, you know, just promise not to go over 2,000 kilometers and we'll trade you the sanctions relief. I think this is a strategic mistake because the regime has precisely what Brad said, which is this SLV capability, this satellite launch vehicle, space launch vehicle capability, which they say uh, is to put, you know, larger and larger satellites into low Earth orbit and potentially uh, even higher than that. Uh, and it's got two tracks, a liquid propellant track, and then during the pandemic, they kicked up a solid propellant track, which has greater military utility. They can be fueled in advance. They can be road mobile. Uh, it kind of functioning like a surprise potential ICBM. And even though there is a lot of arms control history that says you can't go directly from SLV to ICBM, there is one case that did, and that's the history of the Indian 
uh, missile program. Traditionally, the U.S., the Soviet program went in the opposite direction, first military, then civilian space. But we should not make the perfect the enemy of the good. The way a lot of these other countries procure systems, procure, uh, procure components uh, for longer-range strike capabilities, it's much more of a pat- patchwork. They're not doing things to get an A. They're doing things to get a C and then domestically move it up to a B and then ultimately to an A. Uh, right now, they have a weapon that they call the Khoramshar. They name it after a city that was liberated uh, in southwestern Iran at the, at the beginning of the Iran-Iraq war. It's actually a large liquid propellant uh, North Korean weapon. It's more of a threshold weapon between MRBM, medium-range ballistic missile, and IRBM, intermediate-range ballistic missile. Uh, the Europeans in 2019 have noted that the Iranians are changing the warhead such that it could be lighter and fly further, so giving Iran a potential threshold capability. And now Iranian outlets, particularly hardline outlets, are so bold about these new space launches and about the larger diameter rockets uh, that they're calling these space programs, something that we in the West try to adjudicate, is this a civilian test, is this a military test? They are literally calling them an Iranian ICBM. No, I, we mentioned the uh, uh, the testimony by former Director of National Intelligence James Clapper earlier ago, and, and you rightfully uh, made the point that not just him, but successive directors have made the point how that is the means by which we would expect that it would deliver. And they also almost often, I remember in the, in the second or third sentence right after that, they would talk about how the space launch vehicle program is the means by which they are they are covertly uh, developing some of the very same capabilities that would eventually allow them to field an ICBM, which for those listening at home, that is the world's worst state sponsor of terrorism with a missile that could eventually reach our homeland. And the reason I, you know, this is kind of personal for me because this was a, a leading priority uh, for my uh, when working in the Senate, and and we would we were always playing catch up on the North Korean threat, right? Because the Obama administration did not spend what they should have on missile defense, so we were playing catch up on the North Korean missile defense threat. Here was an opportunity to get ahead of the Iranian ballistic missile threat because we don't have some of the same homeland defense capabilities should that ever. Uh, uh, fully appear. And yet, unfortunately, we often wait for threats to fully emerge before we try to get ahead of them. General, I don't know if you have anything you want to add. No, I would just say, like, you know, it, hopefully we can galvanize Will based on the Chinese balloon as right. a wake-up yeah. call. <laughs> right, right. And recognize yeah, yeah. that, you know, hey, you know, this is this is actually probably even more important than defending against the balloons, you know. And and um, and I do think that there's just the overall drone missile threat complex, which Ben, you were the first really to highlight uh, the exper- experimentation with this in Yemen with the Houthis as well. This is going to be an export package from the Iranians. So it's not just a threat from them. It's a, it's a proliferation. And I think we're going to be living in the future under a threat here in the United States that could be analogous to the V1 and V2 threat to to, to London in, in, in World War II. I mean, the distances are shrinking. And we've never been able – to definitively solve this problem. I mean, look at Israel's plight in terms of the threats from southern Lebanon and from Gaza, from rockets there. How about even the Scud missile threat coming out of Iraq in 1991 oriented on Israel? So what we need is we really need a holistic approach to ballistic missile defense. And that that involves obviously, you know, shooting down the arrows, killing the archer. But it also, I think, entails really developing capable easily deployable ground forces, but ground forces they can deploy and transition immediately into a reconnaissance and an offensive mission to take out these capabilities. No one has ever demonstrated the ability to to remove a missile threat from the fluid media of the aerospace domain or the maritime domain alone. And so I, I think this is kind of an organizing construct. I mean, something we have to look at countering from a military perspective. 
But as we've been talking, it also deterrence has, you know, the, the component of will, right? It's capability times will. And I think now our, our adversaries think our will is kind of close to, to zero. And, and I think we have to, you know, ensure that we're prepared to act in our defense and to do so in a way that's much more resolute uh, and determined than we have in the past. Such an important point. You mentioned the balloon, which some some might think, oh, that's disconnected. But in some ways, it's really not because uh, uh, HR, as you know better than me, one of the things that the Chinese spy balloon hovered over was our intercontinental ballistic missile fields where Beijing was clearly trying to learn more about the land leg of our nuclear triad. Right. So, I mean, that, there's well, absolutely and, 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 a missile and, and element to that. the path that took over Alaska yeah, is a path right. over some of our critical missile defense. Exactly. Our two homeland missile defense sites, as, as, as we know, public knowledge is, is in Alaska and California. So right there is a missile threat to the balloon, which who, who thought those were connected, but they are. And then your point that you made, you've made a couple times, HR, is, is how um, if Iran has a weapon, we should assume based, you know, if passes prologue, they're going to use it and they're going to proliferate it. And, and you lived that uh, personally with your experiences in Iraq, where you saw Iranian weapons coming across, designed, specifically smuggled and trained to kill Americans in Iraq. Absolutely. And, and, and we went after those networks aggressively, but we never, you know, we never went after the return address, you know, and, and again, as we did multiple times after Cobar Towers, then our American leaders also often think, well, we're just going to try to have a better relationship with the Iranian regime and then they'll understand us better and they'll no longer be hostile. But, it, but this is, we have to recognize that this is a theocratic dictatorship and, and, uh, and until there's a fundamental change in the nature of that regime and abandonment of the ideology of the revolution, you know this. Uh, you know this. This use of proxy forces, the the so-called forward defense, which is a forward offense strategy, that we're going to have to actually, I think, be much more resolute in terms of answering back to that return address. So many in D.C. It seems like they bring their assumptions, international relations theories, uh, to Tehran, assuming it's a normal nation state. Right. <laughs> it's not right. I mean, as you well, said so then, eloquently. And then, as Tamim Ansari and other scholars have 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 have, uh, have observed. Uh, Kareem Sajapur has, has observed there was a struggle for a period of time between the revolutionaries and the Republicans. But guess what? Hey, the revolutionaries won, and we have to deal with that. And and as much as we want to see a change, I mean, it, it, we we have to deal with the regime that's in power now. And hopefully, the Iranian people will make a decision about that at some point. The regime will cease its permanent hostility to the United States, Israel, and its Arab neighbors, and can be welcomed back into the community. I mean. The, the Iranian people are, are phenomenal people in terms of their culture, in ter terms of their tremendous potential. And I think you see from these demonstrations in Iran, the Iranian people, even though the regime wants to, to blame the great Satan, you know, us, for, for all the population's ills, they recognize that it's really the corruption and the, fa the failure of their own leadership. These bunyads that control their economy, you know, and benefit, you know, all of, all of the clerical order and, and, their, and their, uh, their, their patronage networks. And and you know the Iranian people know that from the series of protests over the last decade or so, the ones oriented on the banks and the other symbols of the regime's grip on the economy and and, and on the financial sector. A theme running through, I think, what we're saying here, and, and it's obvious when you say it, but I think it, there's a lot of important connotations if we accept it as true, which I think it is, is that it, to deter our adversaries, it requires both capability and will. And we have this wonderful juniper oak exercise that we did a few weeks ago, the largest exercise with Israel in history, um, you know, multi-domain, 
uh, aircraft carriers involved, F-35s, B-52s, really impressive. Uh, and we also have uh, a team led by Dana Stroll, whom is a friend whom I respect in, in Riyadh right now, working on this uh, U.S. Gulf Cooperation Council working groups that is focusing on reg- regional architecture, integrated air and missile defense, maritime security, excellent laudable issues that can help move us toward a more cohesive, unified, and capable deterrent to, to the Islamic Republic of Iran. But in the final analysis, if, if right, I mean, if the White House is not willing to use these capabilities to protect our interest, then they're of limited value. Do you Pre- agree, Benham? Precisely. And not just the White House, but also the partners in the region. You know, Iranian officials routinely talk about uh, the arms acquisitions of Iran's adversaries across the Persian Gulf. For instance, the guy who was foreign minister now, uh, Ab- Abdullahian, uh, he used to be a parliamentary advisor. And when he was a parliamentary advisor, he would mock uh, some of the GCC countries, some of the Gulf Cooperation Council countries, saying that they're literally just storage depots of Western weapons. Now, this is certainly not a call to have to use all of those Western weapons, and we need not think about countering the Iranian missile program entirely as having to be like an on-land operation. There are tons of things that the U.S., can and should be doing that is really going to be setting the price floor to getting us in the right mindset to deal with this problem set. We need to better align our ways, means, and ends on an overall better Iran policy, one that is cognizant of everything that has been going on in the streets, particularly since December 2017. These protests that the general is talking about did not appear out of a vacuum. Social issues, religious issues, political issues, economic issues, even environmental issues are driving drivers of massive nationwide street against the state protests inside that country. That country is basically a uh, Islamist authoritarian regime in charge of a nationalist kind of secular democracy seeking population. And that cocktail simply cannot hold, especially when it has two and a half years, of, two and a half millennia of Iranian history behind it. This cocktail, this repressive cocktail cannot hold. And so in all of the regime's displays of strength that we demonstrate uh, inside the report, for instance, in many ways, it also does come with a domestic signaling thing to try to win back this population. But increasingly, that population will not be won back by these shows of force. Increasingly, you have the population mocking the regime's foreign and security policy, reprimanding them for this military spending. And and this is an amazing asset to U.S. foreign security policy, should we wish to be cognizant of it. But this narrow myopic focus, which I know the general criticized when he was in the administration, and most of the administration did criticize pre-2020, of just looking at the nuclear issue and trying to just put put it on a bow and put it on a box and move it to the back burner, is totally divorced from the reality of this threat. And the reality of the threat is that if we don't quarantine it, contain it, roll it back in the region, it is going to proliferate and explode. And that's precisely the problem that we're dealing with, whether it's the cyber tentacles or the terrorist tentacles touching U.S. soil. I know we talked a lot about today the proxy network, but the first ever Iranian state-sponsored attack on U.S. soil was a lone wolf attack. That was actually what we talk a lot about in the kind of terrorism security world as the Sunni style of radicalization. Usually for the Shiite one, we look at cohesion, organization, armed groups, state sponsorship. But the first ever Iranian one happened right near here in Bethesda, Maryland in 1980. Uh, they, it was an, a convert to Islam uh, who killed a former Iranian diplomat. And he actually wanted to aim higher. He wanted to kill Brzezinski and Kissinger. And reportedly the Iranians were like, no, no, just go for this former diplomat first. And then that guy ended up actually 
actually fleeing the U.S. Um, so there, the tentacles spread in, in very diverse and very different ways. But the moral of the story is it is going to be coming to a theater near you. And just as a small aside to, to the Europeans, there is increased coordination now, particularly on the drone front, between various agents of, agencies of the U.S. government, particularly national security apparatus, but the Commerce Department, the Treasury Department, to go after these commercial procurement nodes that the Iranians are using and abusing for their drone program. Well, guess what? Just as Europe is about to get tough on the drone threat in October 2023, if nothing else changes, the UK and the EU are going to delist the mother load, the mother load of Iran's defense industrial base that has made the regime the Middle East's largest ballistic missile arsenal. And those entities are detailed uh, in Appendix C of the report. And those are all coming off the EU sanctions list. And that's going to create tons of coordination problems. So we have to align a lot of things before we even start firing. The um, uh, in our remaining time, uh, I just want to highlight that uh, your monograph, Benham, uh, you know, d- consistent with FTD's culture of not just admiring the problem, but also trying to uh, uh, um, achieve outcomes that secure our country and our allies and do damage to our adversaries, has about ten pages of specific recommendations. Uh, do you want to just give us one or two minutes of of some of the policy prescriptions that you think are most important that uh, anyone listening? can take action on right now to better secure our country and our interests. Only only 10 pages? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. Uh, With lots of footnotes. Yeah. Well, no, it, it's, it's, it's richly sourced because some of these things are actually shared and we should be able to make partnerships, whether it's across the aisle or across the pond, uh, with anyone looking to counter and roll back this threat. So I think this is absolutely critical. You know, one theme that's been totally hit on the head today, and I want to continue to drive the point home, is the need for region-wide integrated air and missile defense, whether that's expediting some of the sales of these systems to our partners in the region uh, when it comes to connecting sensors and shooters. This is a process that's already underway. You talked about some of the current administration's trips to the region to try to align, again, political interest and economic capability and military capacity for some of these states that would be the target of Iran's ballistic missile operations and any kind of potential conflict uh, in the years uh, to come. So getting their uh, air and missile defense capabilities integrated and then integrating it with what we have in terms of U.S. bases and offshore stuff with Aegis Ashore. For Europe, uh, it's critical to get the European phase adaptive approach, some of the missile defense stuff that we have in Poland and potentially Romania uh, on board and faster that faced some delays in the earlier 2000s, uh, both political and financial. Uh, Before there is an Iranian ICBM that could be a threat to the U.S. homeland, there will be an Iranian IRBM that'll be a threat to the European continent. So working on this issue set tirelessly with America's European counterparts is going to be critical. There cannot afford to be an iota of daylight between us and the Europeans on this unmanned aerial threat spectrum. And that means everything from rockets to mortars to cruise missiles to drones to ballistic missiles. And that's the core, core element, would you agree, of their strategies to divide the United States, uh, our Arab partners, and Israel and Europeans as much as possible, knowing that the more divided we are, the weaker we are, and the more they can exploit the seams with their proxies. I mean, that's, I mean, it's, it's kind of everything you ever need to know about strategy learned on the playground, right? <laughs> it's kind of what they're doing. Right? The Ar- divide the Arabs from the Israelis, the Americans from the Europeans. Europeans and keep the world uni- uni- uh, divided. HR, uh, any uh, last comments that you want to add to the discussion that I may not have asked about? Or no, based I, on all your tremendous experience in the, in the Army and as na- in U.S. National Security Advisor and just your current uh, research and observations? Yeah, I, I just want to thank Ben for this amazing report because I do think we oftentimes are in denial about the nature of the Iranian threat, the nature of the regime, and the capabilities it can bring to bear that threaten our interests and threaten our security. And so it's hard to ignore this problem now with this tremendous report. 
And I hope that the administration can use it uh, to develop a more successful policy by by you know taking to heart the recommendations. And I think there are also some legislative remedies here as well that Congress can take on. So I just want to thank Benham for the for the tremendous work that he's done and putting together really an an incontrovertible report about a really serious concern uh, to our national security. Well, thank you uh, so much for that. Ben, I mean, congratulations again on all your great work and your outstanding monograph. Uh, to the listeners, if you haven't read it yet, I highly recommend you go to fdd.org and check it out. I, I think you'll uh, find it fascinating and informative and you want to share it with lots of folks. I, as I said already, I think it is going to be a go-to source for many years to come. And if I were still working in the Senate, I would be reading this thing voraciously uh, for opportunities in the National Defense Authorization Act and elsewhere. Very specific, tangible things uh, I think that can uh, better protect our country and do damage to this this uh, this regime uh, in in Tehran. Uh, General McMaster, thank you for all you've done uh, for our country uh, in uniform and out. Thank you for again for your mentorship and thank you for leading FTD Center on military and political power. Um, it's just it's been a real honor to be associated with you and to learn from you through the years. And uh, to our listeners, thank you so much for joining our conversation. I look forward to connecting with you again soon here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.